Section 28 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine of Braganza, Chapter 2, Part 5. From Norwich their majesties proceeded to Blickling Hall, according to all the existing records, the same day, being a distance of fifteen miles. The register book of Blickling Church contains the following notice of the visit. King Charles II, with Queen Catherine, James Duke of York, accompanied by the Dukes of Monmouth, Richmond, and Buckingham, with divers lords, arrived and dined at Sir John Hobart's at Blickling Hall, the King, Queen, Duke of York, Duchesses of Richmond and Buckingham, etc., in the great dining room, the others in the great parlor beneath it, upon Michaelmas Day, 1671. From thence they went, the Queen to Norwich, the King to Oxnead, and lodged there, and came through Blickling the next day, about one of the clock, going to Raynham, to the Lord Townsend's. Here the events of four days, at least, are crowded into one. The king and queen had already dined at St. Andrew's Hall in Norwich on Michaelmas Day, after his majesty had attended divine service in the cathedral and lunched at the bishop's palace, which proves that the dinner was not in the early part of the day. After his collation at the bishop's palace, he goes through other ceremonials in the guild hall and inspects the trained bands in the marketplace, which would make the civic dinner hour as late as four o'clock. Their majesties, with all the ceremonies pertaining to a royal state banquet and departure, could scarcely leave Norwich before six o'clock, neither could they reach Blickling much before eight in the evening. Consequently, it must have been supper of which they partook on Michaelmas Day in Blickling Hall, and dined there the following day. For it is absolutely impossible that, after so many hours of excitement and fatiguing ceremonials, they should go on to Oxnead the same night, a distance of upwards of seven miles, and afterwards partake of supper there. They, of course, arriving late at Blickling, supped and passed the night there. The state bed in which Charles and his queen slept, at that stately hall, is still shown. The canopy and hangings are of rich white satin, fringed and ornamented with gold. It has the initials C.R. with the crown of England, wrought in bullion on the satin which covers the headboard. The counterpane under which the royal pair are said to have reposed is also of white satin, tamborn most exquisitely with natural flowers and butterflies in colored silks. It would therefore be the day after their arrival that the king, queen, and court dined at Blickling Hall and rode in the evening to Oxnead. While at Blickling, his majesty knighted the youthful heir of the house, Henry Hobart, who was about thirteen years of age. No such fair and splendid cavalcade as that which attended Charles II and his queen will ever again sweep through the green bowery lanes and rural villages, through which Sir Robert Paston proudly conducted his royal and noble guests to his manorial house. Oxnead Hall was large enough to feast and lodge them all, and well did past and play the host on the occasion, if we may trust the pleasant rhymes of the Norfolk poet, who has thus commemorated the attentions paid by him and Sir John Hobart to the sovereign. Stevenson's poem on the royal progress. Paston and Hobart did bring up the meat, who the next day at their own houses treat. Paston to Oxnead did his sovereign bring, and like Arana offered as a king. 
Blickling two monarchs and two queens has seen, one king fetched thence, another brought a queen. Great Townsend, of the treats brought up the rear, and doubly was my lord lieutenant there. The glories of Oxnead have departed with the ancient family of the Pastons, for the princely mansion, where Sir Robert Paston feasts the merry monarch and Queen Catherine, and the bevy of beauties who attended their royal mistress, in the capacity of maids of honor and ladies of the bedchamber, has been leveled for nearly a century, but the ground plan of the building may be distinctly traced. The garden terraces of the old hall remain, descending one below the other to the banks of the pastoral bure, which still glides in peaceful course through woods and velvet meads that once formed the park and chase. A gigantic oak, the last of the stately threefold avenue that once led up to the mansion, was within the memory of man pointed out, beneath which, according to the traditions of the place, King Charles and his queen stood when they shot at the butts, and it was added that his majesty hit the mark. The fact that Catherine of Braganza was the patroness of the Honorable Fraternity of Bowmen in London, and greatly delighted in witnessing feats of archery, gives a strong confirmation to the village tradition, that she and her lord exercised their skill in shooting with bows and arrows during their brief visit at Oxnead Hall, for in the year 1676, a silver badge for the marshal of the fraternity was made, weighing twenty-five ounces, with the figure of an archer, drawing the long English bow to his ear, bearing the inscription, Regine Catherine Sagittari, having also the arms of England and Portugal, with two bowmen for supporters. King Charles's eldest natural daughter, Charlotte Jemina Henrietta Fitzroy, after the death of her first husband, Lord James Howard, married the eldest son of Sir Robert Paston, who was created Earl of Yarmouth. She was most probably in attendance on the Queen during the visit to Oxnead. The King and Queen parted company at Oxnead. He went on with his retinue to Raynham, and she returned with her train to Norwich, where she was a second time entertained at the Duke's palace by Lord Henry Howard. Catherine must have been quite at home, and on terms of intimacy with all of that name and lineage, as Cardinal Howard was her grand almoner, the Countess of Suffolk, her mistress of the robes, and the beautiful mistress Dorothy Howard, one of her maids of honor. She had other members of the Howard family in her household. She remained at Norwich till ten o'clock on the Sunday morning, and then rode to Euston Hall in Suffolk, the seat of the Earl of Arlington, then Lord Chamberlain, where she was rejoined by the King. It was then new market races, in which His Majesty took much interest. On the 9th of October, the great match was run between two celebrated horses, named Woodcock and Flatfoot, one of which belonged to the King, the other to Mr. Elliot of the bedchamber. King Charles had just rebuilt his palace at New Market, a mean building, situated in a dirty street, without either court or avenue. He was there all day, or on the heath, attending the sports, but often rode over to Euston in the evening, to sup and sleep. When the week's sports ended, the king came to spend the Sunday at Euston Hall, whither he was followed by all the company from Newmarket. The nobility and gentry of Norfolk and Suffolk came thither to pay their court to him and the queen, and the whole house was filled with lords, ladies, and gallants. The French ambassador, Colbert, and his suite were there, and more than 200 persons were entertained in the most princely manner for 15 days. 
the queen, her ladies, and the more refined portion of the noble guests, passed their mornings in hunting or riding out to take the air. The French ambassador and the courtly philosopher, John Evelyn, generally joined this gentle company to escape the gambling that was going on all day long among the gentlemen. This, however, was nothing in comparison to the riotous proceedings which took place during the next week's races at Newmarket. Queen Catherine remained, with the virtuous portion of her ladies, quietly at Euston, while the king and his profligate associates pursued their orgies at Newmarket. The Earl of Arlington was, in secret, a professor of the same religion with herself. He was a man of learning, of elegant tastes and polished manners, but specious and unprincipled. Catherine's name has never been involved in any of the intrigues and unconstitutional measures of her royal husband and his profligate ministers. They were one and all unfriendly to her and persevering in their machinations against her. Shaftesbury, the new Lord Chancellor, when the negotiations for the marriage of the Duke of York with a Catholic princess became public in the spring of 1673, took occasion to moot the question of a divorce between their majesties once more and without so much as consulting the king, had engaged Vaughan, one of his creatures, to move in the House of Commons. That there would be no security for the established religion without a Protestant queen, and that Parliament should allow the king to divorce Queen Catherine and vote him a dower of 500,000 pounds with a consort of the reformed religion. There was even a day appointed for bringing this proposition before Parliament, but Charles, when it was named to him, had the good feeling to put a decided negative upon it. He had, on a former occasion, used a strong expression, when tempted by Buckingham and Lauderdale, to follow the unprincipled example of Henry VIII, of ridding himself of his innocent wife on a false pretense. If my conscience, said he, would allow me to divorce the queen, it would suffer me to dispatch her out of the world. After this repulse, the enemies of the queen permitted her to remain unmolested for nearly five years. Little of interest occurs in her history during that time. The arrival of the Duchess of Mazarin in England, who, when Hortense Mancini, had inspired the king with a passion so romantic that he had offered to make her his wife, must have been an alarming event to the queen, who naturally apprehended a formidable rival in one whom he had thus regarded. The lapse of fifteen years had, however, banished every particle of romance from the heart of Charles. Love was with him no longer a sentiment. He gave Hortense a residence at Chelsea and a pension of four thousand pounds a year and visited her occasionally, but her influence never equaled that of the Duchess of Portsmouth. None of our monarchs, with the exception of James II and our late patriotic and beloved sovereign, William IV, appear to have taken a more lively interest in naval affairs than Charles II. Catherine of Braganza entered very fully into his tastes as regarded aquatic excursions, going to ship launches and down to Chatham to inspect the vessels building there, and was happier still if permitted to see the fleet go out of port and drop down to the Nore. Charles did not always gratify his poor little queen by making her his companion on his voyages, which were sometimes suddenly and privately undertaken by him. The Earl of Arlington gives the following account of one of these impromptu expeditions. On this day seven night, His Majesty left Windsor, with a pretense only to see the New Forest and Portsmouth, and the Isle of Wight, 
where, as soon as he arrived, he put himself on board a squadron of ships, posted there on purpose to take him to Plymouth, to see the new fort there, where he arrived on Monday night, which is the last news we had of him. If the wind were fair for it, we should quickly expect him again, and by long sea, where twenty leagues are more pleasing to him than two by land. It is a new exploit for kings, but I hope God will bless him in it, according to those happy constellations which have yet appeared for him. The same minister, when the fleet under the command of the Duke of York, was preparing for sea in April 1672, tells Lord Sunderland, that his majesty had gone down that evening to make them weigh anchor as fast as they could for the downs, adding, and I am to follow him by break of day tomorrow. The reason of this haste was the report that the Dutch fleet had come out, and Charles was determined that no want of vigilance on his part should cause a second surprise. I was ordered, says Evelyn, May 10th, by letter from the council to repair forthwith to his majesty, whom I found in the Pall Mall in St. James's Park, where his majesty, coming to me from the company, commanded me to go immediately to the sea coast, and to observe the motion of the Dutch fleet and ours, the duke and so many of the flower of our nation, being now under sail, coming from Portsmouth through the Downs, where twas believed there might be an encounter. A glorious victory was won by the English fleet, under the command of the Duke of York, over the Dutch, May 28th, off Southwall Bay. King Charles went down to the Nore with all the great men of his court, to meet and welcome his victorious brother on his return. He went on board the shattered fleet, and ordered particular care to be taken of the wounded seamen. On the 17th of June, when all the stains of battle, and everything that might shock the heart and eye of woman, had been removed, Queen Catherine accompanied His Majesty on his second visit to the fleet, which was then refitting for sea. The first Italian opera ever performed in England was produced January 5, 1674, under the auspices of Catherine of Braganza, whose devotion to that style of music and exclusive patronage of foreign musicians did not increase her popularity in England. The divine compositions of Purcell were then considered the perfection of melody, and were more in unison with national taste than the artificial and elaborate style which has since been permitted to supersede the inspirations of native talent. It was, however, long ere an English audience learned to relish the Italian opera, much less to give it the preference over the masks of Ben Jonson and Milton and the operas of Dryden, combining, as they did, the simple sublimity of the Greek tragedy with the enchantment of vocal poetry and instrumental music. It was not easy to persuade the public in those days that a combination of incomprehensible sounds however harmonious they might be, were capable of exciting feelings of admiration and delight, like those with which they listened to the National Opera of Arthur, where Dryden's numbers are wedded to Purcell's melodies, compelling British hearts to thrill impulsively when the stormy defiance of the battle chorus of the Saxons is answered by the spirit-stirring air of Britain's Strike Home. Catherine of Burganza, as a foreign princess, could not be expected to share in the enthusiasm which was awakened by the historical traditions connected with the subject of Arthur, neither could she enter fully into the beauties of English poetry, but Purcell's music had in it a poetry independent of language, which every ear might comprehend and every heart appreciate. 
the angelic voice of Mrs. Knight was considered by Evelyn and other of the cognoscenti of that era to excel those of the Queen's Italian vocalists, and her singing was regarded as a greater attraction than the wonderful violin playing of Signor Nicolau at musical meetings, where also the lute of Dr. Walgrave rivaled the harpsichord of Signor Francesco. The king's excessive admiration for Mrs. Knight excited Catherine's jealousy, although she was first introduced at court to sing Waller's complimentary verses on Her Majesty's recovery from sickness in 1663. Eleven years after that period, another novelty was introduced in the way of royal amusements, which was the performance of a celebrated Italian scaramouche at Whitehall, and it is noticed that money was paid by the public for the first time on that occasion, for admittance to the theater at that palace. This was regarded as a disgraceful innovation in the customs of the good old times. The maids of honor, and even the two princesses, Anne and Mary, were accustomed to perform in the masks at the royal theater. Crown wrote the celebrated mask of Callisto for the use of the two princesses and ladies of Charles's court at the express desire of Queen Catherine. Several of Dryden's tragedies were brought out there by the public actors. Among the few memorials that have been preserved of Queen Catherine's doings in the year 1676 is Evelyn's record of the 28th of April. My wife entertained Her Majesty at Deptford, for which the Queen gave me thanks, in the withdrawing room at Whitehall. It is to be regretted that he did not indulge us with the particulars of Her Majesty's visit and the manner of her reception at his little paradise, says court, where everything that could interest persons of elegant tastes and cultivated minds had been collected and arranged by that accomplished virtuoso, whose memory renders even despised and deserted Deptford classic ground. End of section 28